Welcome to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. I'm Thomas. And I'm Nick, and in today's episode, we have the second part of our exploration of what the gospel is. But first, we have good news concerning our beverages of choice today. In keeping with proclaiming the gospel, this is a stretch, I know. What <laughs> should we proclaim about what we've been drinking today? Go ahead. What have you been drinking? <laughs> that That is a stretch, but um, Nick, today I am drinking uh, Rheingeist since uh since made truth india pale ale made truth oh india Cincy pale made. ale very nice yeah my buddy from uh cincinnati gave it to me for my birthday last week um so happy birthday is... again as well thank you thank mm-hmm. you thank you um so yeah gifted me with some some good uh ipa here it's uh it's 7.2 abv 75 ibu mm-hmm. so it's a it's a good uh india pale ale it's crisp it's uh, clean and it's you know there's no nothing added to it it's just just straight pale ale I know there's a lot of like fruity pale ales coming out these days which are really good but but this is just classic India pale ale and it is delicious well sometimes you need to go back to the basics so actually what you just said is what I'm drinking I'm drinking something from a local brewery well local meaning probably three like you know 300 miles north of me in San Francisco I'm in Los Angeles this is 21st Amendment Brewing, and it's their Blood Orange IPA. Now, so it's got kind of that standard IPA taste, you know, the bitterness and everything. It's about 70 IBUs, I think, about a 7% ABV. But what's interesting is the smell, it actually smells like legit blood oranges. Like, it's one of those where, you know, I take a sniff, and I'm like, yeah, that smells like blood oranges. And the oh, scent, man, you get a little... delicious. It actually is. Uh, the taste, it doesn't taste as strong on the blood orange. It's not like Hop Slam where you can actually taste the honey and kind of the fruits and stuff like that. This, a little more subtle on the taste. But, uh, yeah, I'm really impressed with it. I got it, I think, at Trader Joe's, which was kind of nice. So, yes, we are hipsters this hipsters morning. With indeed, our blood hipsters, orange. indeed. And Trader Joe's. Can't, can't get more hipster than that. I love Trader Joe's. Well, to make it even more millennialish, we went to Whole Foods right after. So, I mean, between <laughs> you and your avocado toast this morning and me going to Whole Foods yesterday, we're, we're basically uh, Generation X's worst nightmare. <laughs> oh, that's, which, that's good. That's good. Which means you and I will never be able to afford anything outside of the basic necessities in life. <laughs> Unless people uh, join in and contribute to our Patreon account. What do you say about that? Oh. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later. I, I just we'll figured from now on I'll intentionally mispronounce it uh, every time for the rest of my life since I can't say please, it correctly please anyway. Don't. Like, oh gosh, you're <laughs> going to drive me to drink more of this blood orange IPA than is healthy. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of episodes ago, I guess we started our um, new little uh, feature that we are calling "Really Bad Pastor Joke," uh, where we tell each other really bad theology jokes or really bad pastor jokes. Um, so. I'll go ahead and start this time, uh, and then we'll record your honest reaction, and then uh, you can tell me yours, and we'll record my honest reaction. Uh, so good. here we go. I'm looking forward to this. Let's do this. All right, here we go. Um, I, so here's the, uh, I'm going to be perfectly honest with this one. I don't know if I've used this in a previous episode or not. Um, I feel like I just made it up on the spot, but I've been so sleep-deprived with um, uh, baby stuff recently that this this could be old, and if so, um, you'll just have to give me some grace. Well, I'll try. I'll try and uh, you know give you a bit of allegiance with uh, with this awful, awful, Ooh. awful joke that I'm probably going to hear. So, yes, oh, hit man. me. That was okay. All right, here we go. What do you call um, somebody who holds to four of the five points of Calvinism? A universalist. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, Calvin-ish. <laughs> All right, I'll give you that one. That one's good. Uh, I'll, I'll drink to that very loudly. Give me one sec. 
was quite good. All right, here we go. And I got this one. I can't remember where I saw it, and I know I've changed a bunch of it to make it what I th- to make it funnier than I thought the original one was. But this was like from weeks ago, and I have no idea where I found the original form of the joke. So to credit to whoever thought of this, and credit to me for messing with it. All right, here we go. How many Calvinists does it take to change a light bulb? Um. I was going to try to guess, but I'm not going to try to guess. How many? Well, the Calvinists first have to debate whether it is a violation of the Sabbath to change a light bulb, because of what day it is, of course. <laughs> Second, they have to debate about their theology of providence, because maybe God wanted it to be dark in the church. <laughs> they also have to debate whether or not one of the elect should stoop so low as to perform manual labor. Wow. Fourth, the Presbyterians have to debate whether or not children can replace the light bulb. Oh, dang. And in the meantime, a Wesleyan freely steps in and changes the light bulb for everyone. Oh, that, Nick, that's harsh. That's. I mean, you know, I, I, I expect a good bit of shade to be thrown at us, and I figure, you know, all in the spirit of good fun. And, you know, I don't think most Reformed people actually find that offensive, because most Reformed people I know have a great sense of humor. And they will probably have a better, they'll probably have a better joke than this, honestly. That's probably true. We'll, we'll, wait, we'll wait to hear. So hopefully somebody will tag us in that. We should do something on Twitter where it's tell us your worst Armenian slash Calvinist jokes, and just that's all we do. That's how we build camaraderie. We just tell each other the worst jokes. Sounds like a good idea. We, <laughs> we should we should do that. <laughs> that. That can't go wrong on Twitter, right? No, there, that, there, that can't go wrong. There's there's no danger in that at all. That <laughs> <laughs> no danger at all. All right. So what's interesting is we've both been insanely busy, and uh, I have a few life updates. Uh, a lot of people have been praying for us, and you have a lot of life updates. I put this on Facebook. I had a treatment accepted for by a pretty fairly well-known publisher for a theological monograph on Paul and Christian perfection. No, it's not on beer. Uh, according to the poll, I was going to be writing on beer or Christian perfection. Shame on the four people that chose beer. <laughs> so I'll, I'll be reading through kind of the, the contracts and stuff. It's been insanely busy. I'll be reading through the contracts and probably signing that in the next few weeks. Uh, I had a really good job interview, too, at a church for a teaching el- or a teaching role. And some stuff is moving there. I don't have enough, you know, details to give, but the prayers that people have been giving have obviously been paying off. Uh, I also uh, went to the Rethinking Hell conference in Dallas-Fort Worth in Texas. And I have Texas barbecue, and that was enough to make me want to stay in Texas for the rest of my life. Uh, but if people are interested to see the video that uh, of the paper that my friend Graham Ware and I worked on, just look up the uh, Split Frame of Reference blog, or my wife Allison and I blog, and you can see the post there and the video on YouTube. It's got like I think like 85 views on YouTube, which is pretty cool. So yeah, aside from that, and we got a cat, basically a stray off the streets that we've saved. We're doing the Lord's work by keeping him confined to the bathroom and not getting killed by him. So, but he's doing pretty good so far. So prayers on that front that we're able to domesticate this cat. Nice, man. You, that's, that's a lot. Uh, congratulations. I know I've told you that, um, privately, but congratulations on thank all you, of those you. things. Um, that's really awesome. Also, let's yeah. get your video up on, uh, our website so people can watch it on our website as well. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Let's do that. It's a fun yeah. video. Good. Yeah, I've watched. I've been. I've watched uh, some of it. I haven't finished the whole thing yet, but I, I will get through the whole thing. Yeah, um, I've gotten a lot of good feedback from people who are critical, which is good. So yeah, yeah, that is good. That's yeah, very fun. 
All right, so you, you've got life going on, too. What's What's been going on with you? Yeah, so nothing nearly as um, exciting as getting a, uh, a book deal or anything like that, but we uh, we did potty train our toddler over the last few weeks. So that We've been potty been, training um, our cat, so it's basically the same thing. We've been doing the same thing, right? That's totally what I we've hate been you. doing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Patreon. Yeah. T- yeah, tell yeah, you what, uh, I, will, I, will, I will gladly trade you. <laughs> uh, no, you can actually, keep your blessing. <laughs> uh, that we had never done that before, and man, um, that that was an adventure. Uh, if you if you have never uh, watched a a two year old um, poop on the floor, step in that poop, and then begin to gag as they realize what they just stepped in, you have never really lived. Um, and, and I got to experience that um, in these past couple of weeks. But the, the good news is uh, we have uh, been relatively successful. She is now uh, going in the potty, I'd say, uh, 95% of the time now. So um, it really, it really has. It has paid off. Uh, but but that was um, that was a, a stressful time. I don't think uh, any – at one point I was thinking like, hey, this should be um, – like a, a premarital counseling activity to see how people get along. But then I realized like, no, there's, I mean that nobody, no premarital couple would survive that at least with our toddler. Maybe other toddlers are different, but ours, it was, <laughs> man, it was, um, it was a sanctifying experience. Like <laughs> <let me, laughs> leading me towards Christian perfection or, uh, something like that. Dragging you through it. <laughs> yeah, so that's been the big thing. And then, you know, we've got uh, Easter coming up at church uh, tomorrow. And uh, we started a new uh, program at church that we're calling Honest Church. Uh, we're, so we're trying to create an environment that's a safe place for people to come explore questions of faith. Our, our first event we we called Stump the Pastor. We just told anybody who came that they could ask any question they, they wanted to ask me, but they felt like they'd never ask in church. Uh, so that was fun. Uh, we're going to keep going with that and, and see what happens. So we, we've got a few different um, you know ministry things in the air, and then um, I'll be gone for a few weeks doing some training with the National Guard. Uh, as you know, I'm a, I'm a chaplain in the Guard, and we train. Uh, right now our mission is if there was a nuclear a nuclear weapon to go off somewhere in the United States, we would be the response team um, to help provide um, you know, reconnaissance and decontamination and basically save the lives of victims. Um, so we're going to be rehearsing that for the next couple of weeks. So I'll be out sleeping in the cold and uh, in long days. So if you, if you think of me, pray for me over the next couple of weeks because that's what we'll be doing. Well, jeepers, that sounds quite intense. All right. <laughs> I'll keep you in my prayer. While I drink my, my blood orange beer on my couch, potty training a cat that seems to like me already, I'll keep you in my prayers. All right. So I, I've, I've got to ask now, was that was that pun intentional? Yes, it was. I'm, I'm, I, think, okay. I like to think okay. I'm going to go with that and say yes, it entirely okay. was. Yes, that, that my training will be intense, but because we'll literally be in tents. Intense, yeah. Yeah, I think All we right. need another rim shot for that one. Just to <laughs> okay, how bad this is. <laughs> oh, gosh. There we go. All right, so uh, good catching up. Uh, we're going to yes. move into our, our content for this episode. Um, in keeping with the, the topic we began, our last episode, we're in the middle of a mini-series where we're asking the question, what is the gospel? Uh, last episode, um, our episode proper, we saw that the gospel is not about avoiding hell or damnation when we die, but as we saw when we looked through um, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we, we saw that the gospel uh, is 
more about uh, taking into full account the full life and ministry of Jesus, uh, and that without doing that, we sort of have an incomplete gospel, that that the atoning death of Jesus, as important as that is, it, it can't be understood apart from his actual life and his teachings, and then as we're going to see today, his resurrection. Um, so the, the point that we emphasized last episode was that um, forgiveness and justification and salvation, um, all of these different things, atonement, propitiation, all of these things need to be understood within the context of the kingdom of God uh, and Jesus as the true and rightful curios, the true and rightful Lord of all, and our participation in that kingdom, as we said in our last episode. Um, so that's where we've been. Uh, uh, take us a little further. Where are we going to go? Right, exactly. The, the gospel is more than just a plan for salvation or an escape route to get away from hell, whatever that is. And as we see in like Luke Acts, the, the gospel is an activity. It's something we're doing. Specifically, I think it's in 27 occurrences of the gospel word group, that euangelion word in Luke Acts. That is both kind of the verb and the noun form of the word. Only twice is this word used as a noun in Luke Acts. And all 25 other uses of this word in Luke Acts, it's used as a verb. Thus, as a bit of a primer on this important word, the gospel is something we are doing and that the early church did. They lived and did this thing. And so it's just a very fascinating way of kind of just the way Luke tells his story in the book of Acts is very much about a, a going and a doing kind of gospel. It, basically, the actions themselves are the gospel, which is really interesting. We'll, we'll talk more about that in a bit. Right, right. Um, so in the in this episode specifically, we're going to be diving into uh, Luke Acts and specifically the uh, the the book of Acts. Um, but before we do that, we just wanted to talk a little bit about this this work as a whole. Oftentimes, you'll see um, biblical scholars, New Testament scholars, refer to Luke Acts as a single book. Uh, most of you know if you flip through your Bible, uh, Luke and Acts are divided uh, with John in between, but we know that that was actually a, a two-volume work written by the same person. Um, Nick, I know you're a bit of a Paul nerd, so I'm going to sort of uh, explain this one. Um, yep, sounds I'll let good. You take the, let's take the lead and get to Paul. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. Um, so, so here's what we know about Luke Acts, and this is based on some uh, very solid biblical scholarship. Uh, we know that uh, Luke Acts is officially an anonymous work. In other words, it doesn't say uh, that you know it's not signed by Luke. Uh, there's no no title um, to Luke, but the early uh, earliest Christians um, believed that it was a two-volume work, and both volumes were uh, written by the same person who they believed to be uh, the traveling companion of Paul, the physician named Luke. Um, and one of the reasons that we uh, can be basically 100% certain that both of these um, works were written by the same person is because of the way that they begin. Um, so if you'll permit me, I am just going to read the introduction to Luke and then the introduction to Acts just to sort of um, build the case here and you're going to see very similar language. Uh, so in Luke chapter 1, um, the author begins, he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So that's the introduction to the Gospel of Luke. 
And then the introduction to Acts begins this way. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Uh, so, in other words, the the writer of Acts tells us that they wrote a previous book about the life of Jesus. Both Luke and Acts are addressed to Theophilus, and you'll have biblical scholars going back and forth um, about just who Theophilus was. But we're on pretty firm ground um, saying that both Luke and Acts are written by the same person, which is why we're going to spend a little bit of time at the beginning of Luke today to set the stage for Acts, since we know that they share the the same author. Um, so in other words, what we see in Luke is the ministry of Jesus. And then what we see in Acts, uh, Acts continues the story, focusing on the work of the spirit in the world and the taking of the gospel to everyone, uh, including the Roman empire and beyond. Okay. Yeah, I know, I know, I know I like to get into the background. I like, I know I like the historical context. Uh, so what we're going to do now that we have that historical context, um, in place is we're going to discuss how Luke uses the word gospel. Um, we're going to, we're going to look at that a little bit in the gospel of Luke, and then we're going to spend the majority of our time, um, in the book of Acts. Uh, and just sort of as a heads up, um, for our listeners, we're, we're sort of looking at this at a 30,000 foot level. Um, we're going to be covering some really large swaths of scripture, um, to get, to get a really good big picture view that the downside to this is that we won't be able to get in as much, uh, exegetical detail as we might normally like. But the upside is that we'll have a really clear big picture, um, understanding of what the gospel was, uh, what they preached. Um, so it, you know, with, with that introduction, extended introduction, um, forgive me, uh, Nick, can you take us into how Luke uses gospel-type language? Yeah, sounds good. I mean, there's just not enough Paul in the world to get me through that, but there's, I'm good with this right now. All right, so in Luke one nineteen, we have the angel appearing, and he says, quote, I am Gabriel, I stand in God's presence. I was sent to speak to you and to bring this good news, euangelion, the verbal form. To you, The gospel is a verb here being used to communicate something that is going to be proclaimed to the people in the presence of the angel. And immediately what we include, too, is the presence of God. And similarly, in Luke 2.10 and 3.18, we have this, quote, gospel being proclaimed, euangelizo, if you want to be goofy, to the or all the people. The Greek word for people, laos, in Luke 2.10 and 3.18 is articular, meaning the people, the peop- all the people in the immediate presence, but it signifies kind of a corporate group of people without clear distinction, which suggests a universal element. This gospel is for the people, that is, for everyone. Yeah, yeah, fine, fine, whatever. Anyway, elsewhere, Luke frames the use of gospel as being for the poor in 4.18 and 3, or I'm sorry, 4.18 and 7.22. The gospel is clearly not for the powerful in an exclusive sense, and by invoking, quote, the poor, Luke is speaking to almost all of humanity at that time, given that roughly 90 to maybe even 99% of the ancient world lived in some form of poverty. And that's what, you know, New Testament scholars lately have been debating is, you know, what are the economic, Paul, what is what is the scope and level of poverty in the ancient world? And most people have concluded that every about 75% of the population lived at or below subsistence level. So very minimum, like basically scraping by day to day. Then even then, like you had the, maybe the next 20% that lived, like you could say low middle class maybe. And then only two to 3% had basically all the wealth and all the land that the rest would work on. 
And so the use of the poor here in Acts and Luke is given kind of a universal element because all almost everyone's poor. And basically Luke is saying that this gospel or good news is for everyone, which of course has implications for our view of atonement and for universal access to God and all these sorts of things. But more could be said about the gospel of Luke and the gospel. But I think today we're going to spend most of our time on the book of Acts and how the but again basically what does the book of acts tell us about how the early church preached this gospel of jesus thomas how does it do it all right so yeah that's basically the uh, the question that we're asking um and so with all of this talk of gospeling and preaching the gospel uh we sort of thought that it would be helpful to just look at some of the evangelistic presentations in acts the book of acts records several public presentations of the gospel a couple from peter uh, a couple from Paul, as well as some other summaries, and so we thought let's just let's just see what these early apostles said when they preached the gospel to see uh, what the gospel really was in the first century, at least uh, as Luke tells it. Um, so we're going to look at these presentations and we're going to ask what exactly was the gospel that these early Christians were gospeling. Yeah, but, and before we can get there, I think we should begin with just at the beginning. Let's start with Acts, and I'm just going to read uh, Acts one verses one to eight. And so we're going to be reading the Bible for a bit, guys. So if you're not cool with that, sorry, scroll ahead, maybe 30 seconds. Here we go. First one, Theophilus, the first scroll I wrote concerned everything Jesus did and taught from the beginning, right up to the day when he was taken up into heaven. Before he was taken up, working in or probably by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus instructed the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed them that he was alive with many convincing proofs. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days speaking to them about God's kingdom. When they were eating together, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. He said, This is what you heard from me. John baptized with water, but only, or in only a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. As a result, those who had gathered together asked Jesus, and this is important here, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? It's to Israel. Jesus replied, quote, It isn't for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has set by his own authority. Rather, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. In the name of the Father, and the Holy Spirit, we can end this podcast. But notice that the early followers of Jesus still thought in terms of kind of earthly kingdoms, like the kingdom of Israel, and not in the kingdom of God. And this is why I think Jesus told them they would be witnesses and not say a general or a governor or anything like that. They are witnesses. They are testifiers to this gospel of Jesus, this life of Jesus. And once again, as verse 8 clearly states, the gospel is for all the Jewish people, but also for the rest of the world, or as the Bible says, to the end of the earth, or to the end of the earth. Yep, to the end of the earth. And so the gospel in Acts is not primarily concerned with establishing an earthly kingdom in Rome or Greece or Athens, or Washington, D.C. Rather, the gospel in Acts is the forceful assertion that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, and that is what we preach and what we live. So that's a really good segue uh, into looking at the first evangelistic presentation in Acts, which is Peter's quote-unquote sermon on Pentecost. Um, that while the word for gospel or preach the gospel is never actually used in Acts chapter 2, um, no, I don't think there's anybody who would deny that what Peter preaches on Pentecost is in fact the gospel. No one would deny that. No, you're absolutely right. 
Um, so I think if we if we look at that, we're going to get a good picture of what when when they preached the gospel, this is what they preached. So uh, a little background to the story, because you you know how much I love setting contextual background, because I believe that context is everything. Hold on, hold on. Let me let me sip real quick. So you can, there we go. There you go. <laughs> All right, fine. Um, okay. So uh, here's the background. Uh, Jesus had just uh, ascended. We read that in Acts chapter 1. The day of Pentecost comes. There is the the sound of a rushing mighty wind. There are the the tongues of of fire that come and sit on each of them. And then they begin to speak in tongues, tongues, languages they don't understand, languages that the people who are in the audience do understand. And all of a sudden the audience is saying, hey, it's 9 in the morning. These guys have had a few too many mimosas. Uh, They they must be drunk. Uh, And so that's when Peter stands up and he responds to his audience. And so what we want to keep in mind uh, as we go through these sermons uh, is is paying attention to who who they are speaking to, who they're preaching to. Uh, in this particular case, the audience that Peter is preaching to is Jewish. Um, and again, we're, we're, like I said, we're going to spend a lot of time just reading uh, the Bible in this one and then unpacking it. So I'm going to I'm just going to sort of read through. Um, uh, Peter's sermon here, and then we're going to uh, unpack it at the end. But I, I want us to get the the fullness of what the gospel was that they preached. And this is the gospel that Peter preached, again, to a Jewish audience on the day of Pentecost who thought that they were drunk because they were speaking in tongues. Um, here's Peter's response. He says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. Uh, Nick, as a side note, we won't tell them uh, what time it is, where you are, uh, when we're recording. Yeah, don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Instead, this is what Peter says. He says, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then Peter goes on to quote Um, the prophet Joel at length. Here's what he says. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Uh, Even on my servants, both men and women, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on those days and they, both men and women, will prophesy. Prophesy. Just gonna throw say that that out and women. And, and women. There we go. Just, just making sure we're, we got that clear. Yes. 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 That is. And women. And uh, women. They will prophesy. Uh, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So. Peter quotes this passage uh, from the prophet Joel, claiming that what these people are now seeing is the fulfillment of that prophecy. So that's what that whole section is for. And then when we get to verse 22, Peter moves into the backbone of his message. And here's what he says, beginning in verse 22. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. 
But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So verses 22 through 24 there are the, are the core backbone of this message. In other words, what Peter is saying, uh, Peter's message is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Uh, and he summarizes the life in the ministry, uh, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And when he says, you yourselves know that these are the things that were done among you, he is talking to a group of people who saw and heard what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. Uh, so in other words, the, the life and the ministry of Jesus was the, was the background, the foundation of uh, what Peter was talking about, and it laid the groundwork for Peter, Peter to be able to say, and then you killed him, and then God raised him. Um, so he didn't need to explain who Jesus was because he knew that his audience had already heard of them. Uh, so then in, in verses basically um, 25 through um, 35, uh, Peter dived, he, he quotes a couple of different psalms. In the, he, he camps out for a bit on the resurrection uh, using Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 as evidence that this resurrection really was in uh, in accordance with the scriptures, right? He's saying, so, um, you know, if you, if you go back and you look at Psalm 16 and you look at Psalm 110, um, these things that the, the psalmist wrote are the things that, that were written about, uh, David were really written about uh, David's descendant and we believe him to be Jesus. So, so that's why, um, Peter camps out so long in the resurrection because they weren't really expecting a resurrection because they hadn't been expecting a crucifixion. You have anything to add there, Nick? I mean, I find it fascinating that Peter, in this gospel presentation, this proclamation of something people already know, that everything is going on, and how all these things are vindicated, and all how God has been acting, Peter never said anything about going to heaven, or to hell, or about sin, or repentance, or faith, or grace. That is really interesting. Why do you think that is? What... I'll explain. Um, I, I, verse 36 is is the climax of this sermon, of this presentation. And here's what he says in verse 36. He says, therefore, right? When a preacher says, therefore, it's time to pay attention. They're, they're, they're bringing therefore, the main point. Now we focus. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Exactly. The greatest word in Greek. Therefore, it's like, okay, now we know we're getting the main point. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, so Peter says, therefore, that means pay attention. He, he's bringing, here's the, here's the focus, here's the point of his message. This is the gospel according to Peter. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And this is the end of Peter's sermon, right? <coughs> Peter sits down. This is the end of the first gospel presentation, and the climax is, is the bold declaration that the same Jesus that they knew, had seen, had listened to, had observed, had heard about, had seen crucified, had participated in, in calling for his crucifixion, had been raised from the dead, and this was proof that he really is now the rightful Messiah and Lord of all. This is the gospel. And like you said, he never says anything about heaven or hell or even sin, or repentance, or all of the words that we typically associate with the gospel are not in this presentation. And that's because 
those things, and we're gonna we're gonna ruffle some feathers here, but those things are not the core of the gospel. <gasps> no, don't say that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but th- th- they're not. They're not the core of the gospel. They're related to the gospel, absolutely, and they mm-hmm. are implications of the gospel, absolutely. But they are not the gospel itself. The gospel, according to Peter's presentation here, is Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection his rightful place as Lord and Messiah. Now, here's the thing. As soon as Peter says this, Luke tells us that in in the very next verse, he tells us that Peter's audience was deeply troubled, as the common English Bible puts it, or his audience was cut to the heart, as the New International Version says. So, So, Nick, why do you think his audience was deeply troubled? Why do you think they were cut to the heart if he never said anything about sin or repentance or hell or anything like that? Well, it's, I mean, it's because, I mean, there's many reasons, but I mean, the instance I pick up is it was because they realized they'd picked the wrong side. They'd, if Jesus really was the king and Messiah he had claimed to be, and his resurrection made it clear, like, like confirmed and vindicated by God that he was who he claimed he was, then in effect, they had committed treason against God. They had crucified God's Messiah. They're the anointed one of God. And I imagine having that sort of <laughs> blood on your hands would be pretty troubling. I'd be terrified if I if, if that was just slapped in my face by Peter. I'd be like, oh, we, we did that, didn't we? Right. Exactly. Um, so... Once they hear once they hear that they say what should we do that was their that was their question what should we do because they you know the preaching of the gospel had elicited in them a need for a response without Peter actually making that clear um, so they say oh okay we, we realize that we, we we've basically committed treason so they say what do we do now and that's when Peter uh, responds he says repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins now this is important. Hmm. Uh, because the call to repentance was in addition to the proclamation of Jesus and in response to the question from his audience. It, had his audience never asked anything and Peter never been given the chance to respond, repent and be baptized, Peter still would have preached the gospel. And I, I just want to make mm-hmm. sure that, that that's clear because the gospel was Jesus. The response to the gospel is repentance. Amen. And something that tells us too, and this is a bit of an excursus, I just had this thought. What does it say about the character of God that flame and fire and annihilation didn't follow the crucifixion of Jesus? You know, why weren't, why, why wasn't anyone incinerated and destroyed? The fact that Peter says, repent, return to God and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And it's like, it's the acknowledgement of their sinfulness, but at the same time, it shows the character of God that God Mm. doesn't seek their annihilation mm. like in response to this it's like, mm. you know what I mean and so not only in, in the context of Peter's message this call to repentance has a very specific of course application he was calling Jews who had rejected Jesus as their rightful Messiah to stop rejecting him and give him their allegiance sort of like how Herod switched allegiance from Antony to Augustus as we've talked about and if they did so their previous treason would be pardoned and they may be included as full members because of God's good character and good will toward them exhibited in Christ Mm, we need some, we need some choir start starting in the background like, the preaching. That's man, that's so good. Uh, yeah, a few more beers in me, I might start singing. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and listen, this is so important because I've seen people try to use Peter's sermon here as like a generic outline for for um, 
like a generic gospel sermon, which is you're a sinner in need of a savior so that you can go to heaven instead of hell. But that's not the point. That's not what Peter's nope. getting at. Um, close. Right. As a matter of fact, <laughs> that presentation, you, you know, you're a sinner in need of a savior so that you can go to heaven instead of hell, actually shifts the presentation uh, from focusing on Jesus to focusing on people. And they call us man-centered. Can you believe it? Well, let's just, let's unpack, let's even just take a second on that word repent. It gets a bad rap in our culture from both, you know, left and right. And it simply means a change of mind or a change of heart, as we've talked about. But I think what's really powerful about this is that it talks, repentance is not merely about something we do. It's also about the character of God and what God does for us and what God requires as a response from us in reconciliation and atonement in some sense. I mean, Acts 8.22 is just kind of a great example of an imperatible command, a thing where you have to do this. This is what I demand of you as God. As an imperatible command for a person to repent from this evil. And if we do this, God will forgive us. And the sort of thing that Peter says to them, you know, repent and be baptized. Change your life. Change yourself. Seek God. Recognize the sin you've committed and be baptized. And in consequence of baptism, live a life dedicated to God and not to Caesar or to yourself. And I think, and that's the great thing about imperatives in the New Testament. They assume you have the ability to do what God has called you to do. And if we do this, God is faithful and just and in his loving kindness forgives us. Uh, that's so good. And we have to point that out, um, you know, because we're the synergists, right? <laughs> um, and so, so we have to point out that when, when the audience says, what should we do? Peter doesn't say, well, there's nothing you can do unless you're elect and God changes you first. No, he gives them something to do. Um, and not only that, he commands every one of them to repent and be baptized. That's what he says. He says, every one of you needs to do this. That would be a really odd thing to say if Peter believed that God had predestined some to believe and others not to, right? Peter seems to be working here under the assumption that everyone in his audience had the ability to respond. Yeah, and it's just, I mean, it's just the basic nature of an imperative in the New Testament. An imperative is a verbal command to a person or to a group. It's almost always in the active tense form, which means this is something a person does in response to what God or another person has commanded of them. And this is just, I mean, it's, you know, rep- you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God in Acts eight twenty one, the verse right before this. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see you're full of bitterness and captive to sin notice the captive to sin and so this assumes that people have the ability to respond to what god is doing and it's just it's really fascinating just to think about synergism yep synergism indeed (laughs) uh so in in review um this this first evangelistic presentation after jesus's ascension is all about jesus it's about his life his ministry his death his resurrection, and his rightful place as Messiah and Lord. Uh, And just just as a reminder, there is nothing explicitly mentioned about atonement, nothing about justification, nothing about imputation. Uh, Even repentance and forgiveness are only mentioned in response to his audience's questions about what they should do. Um, And the reason we bring this up is because many in the... um, evangelical church and especially in the reformed tradition are are going to say that these things uh, are foundational to the gospel but if that's the case we'd have to conclude that peter didn't actually preach the gospel which of course would be very very silly right 
and it, it just misses out. I mean, it's not as if we're not saying atonement or forgiveness aren't important. They're vitally important, but they are response or consequences of the resurrection of Jesus. And the next public proclamation takes place in the next chapter in Acts three twelve through 26, following the healing of the uh, disabled or lame man at the temple gate. Once again, the word for gospel isn't used here, but notice how much this proclamation has in common with the first, with Peter's, I believe. Here's what Peter says to the onlookers. Onlookers, not onlurkers. That's weird. He's not a creeper. Here we go. You Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why are you staring at us as if we've made him walk by our own power or piety? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus. And this is going to take a while to say, but it's, it's worth it. This is the one you handed over and denied in Pilate's presence, even though he had already decided to release him. You rejected the holy and righteous one, and asked that a murderer be raised to you, or released to you instead. You killed the author of life, the very one whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. His name itself has made this man strong. That is because of faith in Jesus' name. God has strengthened this man whom you see and know. The faith that comes through Jesus gave him complete health right before your eyes. Quote, Brothers and sisters, I know you acted in ignorance. So did your rulers. But this is how God fulfilled what he foretold through all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer. Change your hearts and live. Turn back to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then the Lord will provide a season of relief from the distress of this age. And I'm a nerd, so I hear Paul in Galatians 1 talking about this present evil age. The distress of this age, and he will send Jesus, whom he handpicked to be your Christ. Jesus must remain in heaven till the restoration of all things about which God spoke long ago through his holy prophets. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up from your own people a prophet like me. Listen to whatever he tells you. Which is a good way. You know, it's, you know, it's good when, you, when the Lord says, Listen to whatever this person tells you to say. Whoever doesn't listen to that prophet will be totally cut off from the people. All the prophets who spoke from Samuel forward announced these days. You are the heirs of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your ancestors when he told Abraham, Through your descendants all the families on earth will be blessed. After God raised his servant, he sent him to you first, to bless you by enabling each of you to turn from your evil ways. Once again, the message at its core is all about Jesus as fulfilling the prophets, as fulfilling what God has foretold through through history, and about what God desires to bless us by enabling us to turn from our wickedness and our sin. Exactly. Uh, and as we can see, this the the content between the first presentation and this presentation is very, very, very similar. Uh, Peter speaking to a Jewish audience, we see that uh, he, he proclaims that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to send a Messiah. Uh, he even, I, wanna, I love this, he says, um, talking about Jesus as the prophet like Moses that God will raise up, he says, listen to him and do what he says, right? So so we're getting back to the Gospels. The teachings of Jesus are Do what sent- Jesus tells you to do. Yeah, hey, do what ima- Jesus tells you to do. <laughs> imagine that. Um, imagine that. This, and this is central to the gospel. Uh, listen, obeying Jesus, uh, following his teaching is central to the gospel. Um, and then he follows it again. They rejected him. They killed him. But God raised him. And now God will pardon them if they change their mind and embrace Jesus as their rightful king, which includes doing what Jesus said. Exactly. 
Exactly. And even though repentance and forgiveness play a, a more central role in this presentation, we have to be careful not to make these thing, these phrases or words synonymous, meaning something they don't really mean. For example, Peter is not saying, you're an evil sinner who deserves hell, but Jesus took your punishment on himself so that you can go to heaven when you die. Peter doesn't say anything as systematic as that. Peter is far more direct. After God raised his servant, he sent him to you first to bless you by enabling each of you to turn from your evil ways. Sounds pretty pretty clear cut. That is clear cut, and that that's such an important distinction. Um, even though we see repentance language and forgiveness language, that's not the same as uh, you're a sinner who deserves hell, but Jesus took your punishment on himself. Um, that actually reminds me. Have you ever heard of uh, the way of the master evangelism? I have, yes. I I, get, I don't have another beer on me, but I'll drink that now that you've mentioned that. <laughs> I, I remember watching that. It, it made famous by, by Ray Comfort and, um, oh, what's that other guy's name? Kirk Cameron. Um, and they, they go around to these audience members and they basically say, like, okay, so they start, like, it's like a three-question or four-question thing. Do you think you're a good person? And the person on camera says, well, yeah, I think I'm a generally good person. Um and then they'll say, well, have you ever told a lie? And the person will say, well, yeah, I've told a lie. And they say, well, what does that make you? And the only ob- obvious answer is a liar. And, and then they say, have you ever stolen anything? And most people say, well, yeah, I mean, not much, but yeah. And they say, well, what does that make you? I'm like, well, a thief. And they're like, have you ever like looked at someone with lust? Because Jesus said that that's the same as adultery. And they say, well, I mean, yeah, of course. And they say, well, what does that make you? Like, I, I guess an adulterer. And they say, well, by your own admission, you're a liar and a thief and an adulterer at heart. And so if you were to stand before God today, do you think you would go to heaven or hell? And they're like, well, I guess I'd go to hell. And they say, well, aren't you glad that Jesus took your rightful punishment on himself so that you can go to heaven? And they present this as the gospel. Um, but And that might be an extreme example, Nick, but it really is a pretty good description of how much of American evangelicalism understands the presentation of the gospel. Um, but I, I love what N.T. Wright says in his uh, in his book that came out a couple of years ago now, uh, The Day the Revolution Began. Here's what he says. Um, he says, we have platonized our eschatology, uh, substituting souls going to heaven for the promise of new creation, and have therefore moralized our anthropology, substituting a qualifying examination of moral performance for the biblical notion of human vocation, with the result that we have paganized our soteriology, our understanding of salvation, substituting the idea of God killing Jesus to satisfy his wrath for other genuinely biblical notions that uh, he explores later in the book. All right, well, hold on, buddy. Those are some big words. So let's, let's break this down. Platonized our eschatology. What I think N.T. Wright is saying, what I think he's correct on, the idea of of this earth is not our home, we're going to heaven in a nebulous afterlife, uh, someplace, somewhere, sometime in the future, once we die, is not the vision of the New Testament. The new vision of the New Testament, by and large, and you can see this from the Gospels to Revelation, is the idea of new creation, as Paul talks about, to use a Pauline phrase. And the idea of souls going to heaven or anything like that is not, it does not work or comport with the biblical evidence of a bodily resurrection, of God's good kingdom, of reconciliation. These are all things that happen between agents, between people. And it's not as if this earth is going to be kind of discarded or our bodies are going to be discarded. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, it's all about how we're getting the same body. The identity is consonant that, you know, it's not as if you're raised and, you know, you're entirely different. There's continuity between death and resurrection. 
but at its heart, we've Platonized our eschatology in the sense that we've kind of punted all of our hopes and dreams to, about heaven into the afterlife to the extent where we forget about what God is doing in the world, in his world right now. And I think that's what we need to talk, what, when what we do is, as a lot of evangelicals, is we've, we punt our eschatology into the eschaton, which gives it zero significance and zero biblical relevance. And I think that's what N.T. Wright's getting at. That's actually quite profound. Uh, and that's exactly what he's getting at if you, if you read the book. So, um, again, and just to just to break this down for um, maybe some of our listeners who don't have um, theology degrees or read this a lot, um, eschatology is study of like the end times. Eschaton is the end or the finale. So eschatology is study of the end. Uh, Platonized is referring to um, platonic thought based on the philosopher Plato, right? Who And, and that's really where we get this idea of souls that uh, – like exist forever apart from a body, which isn't, as you just described, isn't the biblical teaching. So what N.T. Wright is saying is that we've taken um, a Greek philosopher and we have applied that to the Bible and our study of the end times in a way that doesn't fit. He also says that we have moralized our anthropology. So anthropology is a is a theological term talking about our understanding of uh, the human condition and the human vocation. Um, and it's hard to unpack this in just a couple of minutes. You'll have to read the whole book. Uh, we'll, we'll include it in the link. Um, but he talks about that, that this idea that fundamentally it's not that we have broken moral laws and God is angry that we've um, broken moral laws, we didn't live up to the moral standards, that we have mm. abandoned what we had been called to do. That's the fundamental mm. sin is that we, we have ceased being the, the image bearers that, that he has called us to be. Um, so that's why he says that we've, we've substituted a qualifying examination of moral performance for the biblical notion of human vocation what what he gets at is that this whole idea what what cameron and um comfort and and these other american evangelical preachers do by by that that whole you know demonstrating that you've broken some moral law that that's that at its heart is not what um what the it's it's not what what sin really is. It's a manifestation of sin, but, but the, the greater sin is that we have lost who we were called to be, not just that we have done some mm. bad things. So that's what he means right. by moralized our anthropology. And, and just to cap this off, the idea of paganized our soteriology. Soteriology is the study of, of salvation and liberation and what God does for us and what we do and all these sorts of things as well. And what he means, I think, by paganized our soteriology is kind of using uh, pagan categories and it's not that every person does this but you can see some of these sorts of things where uh, paying off gods with sacrifices to appease their anger is a very pagan notion and something uh, God in the Old Testament specifically refused. I have no desire in these things. I don't want these things. And when we talk about soteriology it's not as if God killed Jesus to make himself feel better uh, or any sorts of things like that. And it, at its basic idea, we've made our soteriology purely transactional and purely about satisfying wrath. And it's not as if there aren't elements of that that could be true, but we've basically, our, our soteriology should not be parsed out in the realm of Greek philosophy and Greek myths about deities needing blood sacrifices, especially of people. Soteriology, at its heart, I think, is about a people being called into a vocation that's the anthropology and our eschatology which is present and partially actualized in the resurrection and incarnation of Jesus therefore dictates our soteriology and our need for liberation from sin from death 
and from empire and oppression and our genuine need for forgiveness and what God calls us to do. So it's not about God, you know, killing Jesus to make himself feel better. It's about God offering Jesus to us as as a gift, essentially, as, as Ephesians talks about, the gift of Christ and stuff like that. And so it's not about the transactional nature of sacrifices. It's about a relational category about what God does for us. Exactly. And here's why, th- why I think this is so important, why uh, it's worth spending this time talking about these big words. Uh, because if... If you already come at Scripture with this framework, the framework um, that that Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron and, and so many others use in their gospel presentation, um, you're a sinner, and if God judged you today, your soul would go to heaven instead of hell. If if you come at Scripture with that framework already in place, um, it, it's easy to to impose that onto these passages that we've looked at, um, these presentations, mm. but with, if you don't have that framework already in place, um, and, and here's what N.T. Wright and, and other New Testament scholars and historians are, are so helpful at, is they're, they're helping us to see that this just wasn't the framework of the early Jews and the early Christians. That's, that's not what Peter was saying. Um, Perhaps we could read that into Peter. We could pull out, we could proof text some verses and pull out a couple of verses and twist it to say that. But, but that's not what Peter was saying. Peter was not saying this is about you and your moral failing before God and, and your eternal destination to hell. He's saying, no, this is about the fact that Jesus has now been made rightful Messiah and Lord and, and, you owe your allegiance to him as your rightful leader. Now, does that require repentance? Yes. Does that lead to forgiveness? Yes, but not in the same way and not with the same presentation that we so often hear um, in American evangelicalism. Precisely. And, and so now that we've seen a few of these early evangelistic presentations, Thomas, let's, let's look at the first appearance of the actual word for gospel in Acts. <laughs> Yes, let's do that. Um, so, so the first appearance of the verb, euangelizo, which means to proclaim the gospel or to proclaim the good news, shows up in Acts chapter 5, verse 42. And here's, here's what Luke tells us. He says, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, Don't miss this. This is so important. Luke's one-sentence summary of the gospel that was being preached was, Jesus is the Messiah. Um, Well, this, as we've seen, this is actually a pretty good summary of the evangelistic presentations that we've looked at so far in Acts. So Luke tells us that the gospel, according to the early preachers in the earliest days, was Jesus is the Messiah. Um, now, of course, up to this point in Acts, their audience had been exclusively Jewish, right? They, they, they hadn't yet gone out to the Gentiles. And so for them, the meaning of Messiah would have been incredibly clear. They knew that the Messiah was going to be their king, was going to be their lord, was going to be their ruler. And so their, their gospel message was Jesus is king, Jesus is lord, Jesus is ruler, you crucified him, he's been raised from the dead. Um, and as we saw in episode four, this is quite consistent with the gospel that Jesus proclaimed during his own life. 
Um, and of course, you know, we have that word teaching in there um, from the from the Greek word didasko. Um, it, it basically that means that they were also informing people about the life and the resurrection of Jesus, not just his death. It was a, as we've seen in both sermons so far, it was a holistic presentation. Jesus's life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection, culminating in his place as the true Lord, the true Messiah, um, the true the true ruler. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And this is really important that we don't just kind of gloss over a lot of this. What makes a lot of this just really powerful is it really preaches well. Just on a side note, it really preaches well. And so, it does. Uh, <laughs> it does. Chapter 8 of the book of Acts includes kind of a cluster of these words for gospel. And we'll spend a little bit of time here. Right before this, we see Paul going throughout the area, seizing men and women, men and women, throwing them in prison. In Acts 8, 4, Luke talks about the people being scattered, preaching, and perhaps gospelizing the word. Hey, Nick. Yeah. Why would Paul seize women? Uh, because he thought they was a threat. Why, why would women be a threat? Because they probably have positions of leadership and probably witnessed the resurrected Jesus and the non-resurrected Jesus before he was, died, he was killed. Hmm. 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 Sorry, keep going. No, that's good. Yeah, no. The very act of talking about the gospel of Jesus was seen as sedition and treasonous. And so I'll read a little bit just from Acts 4. This is uh, from... Uh, just uh, Paul was ravaging, dragging up both men and women in Acts 8.3. My apologies. He committed them both to prison. And what makes this so powerful, I think, in Acts is this language that we just kind of, we just kind of forget about what these, le- these words mean. And so when we see these words being used and all these sorts of things, uh, you know, for example, but when they believed Philip, or here, I'll start in verse 9. Now, a certain man named Simon had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying he was so, saying that he was someone great. All of them, from the least to the greatest, listened to him eagerly, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they listened eagerly to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, who was proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. After being baptized, he stayed constantly with Philip and was amazed that he saw the signs and great miracles that took place. And they listened eagerly. But when they believed Philip, who proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized. It's a good word. And so we often, but and this is interesting too, just as a side note, we often think negatively about the Jewish leaders during this time, but think about it. We have a group of Jesus people who claim that a Messiah was raised from the dead and this Messiah is Lord. Rome is occupying Israel right now and only Caesar can be Lord. Thus, a political conflict kind of lies bubbling right beneath the surface and the Jewish leaders, perhaps sensing a massive influx of death and destruction and further ta- retaliation from Rome, as has happened before are trying to survive in an already oppressive environment. This is not to suggest that, of course, that the Jewish people or Paul or anyone else are not doing evil things or bad things or making mistakes or sinful, but it suggests that their motives are probably a little more complex than we usually think, especially in the context of early Christianity, early Judaism, and the conflict they're in. I think that's that's really important to, important to point out, and, and that's exactly right. Um and like you write, in Acts chapter 8, verse 12, Luke gives us another summary of what Philip had been preaching. Here's what he says. He says, the people in Samaria believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news. There's our word, euangelizo, proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God 
and the name of Jesus Christ. This was his message. The kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Once again, the gospel message was centered on the kingdom of God and Jesus as king and people believed and were baptized to commemorate their initiation into that kingdom. And not to toot my own Wesleyan Baptist horn, but we've been doing it right for a while just before everyone decided to hop on the biblical Baptist badwagon. Just saying. <laughs> funny, funny. Yep, yep. Anyway, one's faith in what one a person's faith in what Philip was gospeling led to baptism, as we've seen, consequences of the gospel. Throughout the rest of the chapter in eight twenty five, eight thirty five, and eight forty, the early followers of Jesus were proclaiming and asserting the good news about Jesus, as they've been doing this whole time. So, up to this point, it has been pretty clear that for a Jewish or mostly Jewish audience, the gospel that was proclaimed was centered on Jesus and his rightful place as God's promised Messiah, King, Lord. So, I think a question to ask is, what about when the gospel began to be preached to the Gentiles? Well, you know, it would really be nice if we had an example of that in Acts. I mean, I'm sure there, there probably wouldn't be because, you know, the Bible doesn't care about us Gentiles, right? It just doesn't care. <laughs> Well, you know what, Nick? As a matter of fact, there is. You don't say. Oh, my gosh. Imagine that. Tell us all about it. <laughs> okay. So, um, as, as usual, I'm going to get into a little bit of background here. Um, so, the, the first presentation to um, it, the Gentile audience that we have, uh, exclusively Gentile audience that we have in Scripture, is Acts chapter 10. So, the, the background here, um, Peter is hanging out in the city of Joppa with a man named Simon, um, and there is a um, Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius who is living up in the city of Caesarea, which was sort of the Roman capital of the province of Judea. Um, so, he was a leader of about um, 80 soldiers, the the word centurion is kind of misleading. It wasn't a hundred, it was 80. So he was a, a leader of 80 soldiers. Uh, we're told that he feared God. So uh, that's possible that he was um, known as what was called a God fearer, which was somebody who attended synagogue, but didn't go all the way and become circumcised and follow dietary laws, but that he was already well spoken of by the, by the Jews who were living in Caesarea. Anyway, he, he prays to God, he gives alms and he gets a visit, a vision from uh, an angel who tells him to go send for Peter, who is hanging out down in Joppa, and Peter will explain to him uh, what's going on. Meanwhile, um, Peter's in Joppa. He goes up onto his roof uh, while he's waiting for some sandwiches to be made, and uh, he sort of falls into this uh, trance in which he sees this vision coming down of a sheet full of all sorts of animals uh, that were unclean according to Jewish dietary laws. Um, and uh, he hears a voice saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Uh, and Peter says, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, no, nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. The voice responds, uh, what God has cleansed, don't call unclean. Um, this had to happen three times and God was sort of preparing Peter for what's about to happen. Uh, when he sort of comes out of this trance, there are the messengers from Cornelius waiting for Peter at his house. Peter then travels um, from Joppa up to Caesarea with these people uh, to the house of this um, Roman centurion Gentile named Cornelius. And again, for those of us living in the 21st century, like we don't understand how scandalous this was. Um, 
you know, not only were Gentiles looked down on, but Romans were looked down on, and Roman soldiers were looked down on, and leaders of Roman soldiers, because they represented oppression. And so for Peter to go into Cornelius's house uh, to, to speak to him was just incredibly scandalous, uh, and we often miss that as we read the story. But anyway, so, so Peter shows up in Cornelius's house, um, and after some, some back and forth, he presents a gospel message to Cornelius. And here's what Luke tells us Peter said. Um, I'm going to read to you again a a big section from Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 43. Uh, Luke says, Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that was preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So what from that sermon sticks out to you, Nick? Well, jeepers, uh... In verse 36, I think we have a really powerful example of, of the thesis of Acts and also our thesis that the word which he sent out to the sons of Israel, gospelizing about peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. I think that's my own translation. This gospel about peace in Jesus as Lord of all people, as we've seen before in the book of Acts and the Gospels, it's, uh, you just kind of keep looking at it. You kind of go, well, I mean... It's just kind of the same reiteration. It's not about, as we've talked about, kind of evangelical distinctives that we like to talk about, heaven, hell, amputation, all these sorts of things. And so you just kind of stop and go, I I guess maybe Peter's trying to communicate a certain point about that this gospel is about the life of Jesus and God's raising him from the dead. Maybe it's just that simple. Maybe it could just be me. Uh, Exactly. And again, um, there's very little difference between... um, the sermons on Acts chapter 2 and 3 and Peter's sermon out in Acts chapter 10, that the content, like you pointed out, is the same. It's Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his lordship. He says he is lord of all. And if you if we go back to our, our previous um, you know episode on this, episode 4, where we talk about the gospel, that that term lord of all had very political implications, right? It was a, it was a term that was applied to Caesar. And so here Peter is showing up in the house of this Gentile, uh, this not only Gentile but but Roman soldier who you know reported to Caesar in a sense, saying that Jesus really is Lord of all. Um, and then you know he does talk about he does talk about judgment. Um, he does talk about um, forgiveness, but but not in the same way. This is not the the same um, you know you're a sinner in need of a savior, and he took your punishment. If not, you'll go to hell. It's that you know. Um, 
Cornelius would have understood the role of the Curios, the role of the Lord, in executing judgment and justice, um, and and so that, uh, but but that those who are uh, who believe, or as we've talked about in in previous episodes, those who have allegiance toward the Curios, those who have allegiance, faith, goodwill towards um, the Lord, will receive forgiveness of sins. Um, and so what, what we see here, what I think is incredibly important to point out, is that the gospel that is preached both to the Jews and to the Gentiles is the same. It's the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus culminating in his lordship and that obedience to Jesus hmm. is uh, is the gospel. That, 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 that the lordship of Jesus is the gospel and that... Um, Obedience then is the proper response to that gospel. Um, so, uh, and and we take this, and then this this event in Scripture is is huge. Luke tells the exact same story, basically in Acts chapter eleven, right? I, I mean, sometimes it, it almost seems like it's word for word, um, and then it comes up again. In Acts chapter 15, uh, at the Council of Jerusalem, when, when all of the leaders are meeting together to dis- decide what needs to happen about circumcision and, and law following. And in Acts chapter 15, um, verse 7, after there had been a lot of debate, um, Peter, Peter stands up and he talks to the leaders there. He says, fellow believers, you know that early on God chose me among you as the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel, right? Um, mm-hmm. And come to believe, have faith, allegiance. Um, and so what we see is that what Peter preached to Cornelius really was the gospel. And Peter believed that it was the word of the gospel. And yet in mm-hmm. there we have nothing about, um, you know, works-based salvation, nothing about propitiation, nothing about penal substitutionary atonement, all of these things. What Peter preached to Cornelius was Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, culminating in his ultimate lordship of all. Exactly. And as we see in Acts 13, for example, uh, Acts thirteen thirty-eight through 39, therefore, brothers and sisters, know this, through Jesus, we proclaim forgiveness of sins to you. So through Jesus, by means of Jesus, we proclaim forgiveness of sins to you. From all who sins, from all those sins from which you couldn't be put in right relationship with God through Moses' law, through Jesus, everyone who believes is put in right relationship with God. It's that great preposition that through Jesus, whatever you say about being put in right relationship or forgiveness of sins, it comes through the mediatorship, mediatorship, mediatorship. It's like you and Patreon. <laughs> mediatorship of Jesus, his lordship, and his authority as Messiah and king, rightful king. Everything happens through them, or through him, rather. And just to, so that's for Acts um, thirteen thirty eight through thirty nine. Um, if you'll permit me, Nick, in my in my need for context and background, give me um, babe. That's coming from Paul's sermon to uh, the to the Jews in Pisidian Antioch. Uh, so this is at the very end of Paul preaching the gospel to the Jews. So we've we've transitioned now from Peter into Paul. Um, Paul's preaching the gospel, and, and before he gets to that conclusion, that that therefore, right, which is so important, he talks about early on. Um, he says in in verse thirty two of, of 
Acts chapter 13. He says, we tell you the good news. So he tells, this is the good news, according to Paul. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Right? So I think he you talks, got it wrong. I, I didn't hear anything about not going to hell. I think you missed. Are you sure that's not there? Maybe a textual I, variant or something like that? I, it, it, it must be um, in some textual variant because it all I be, can yeah. see in this in this <laughs> sermon <laughs> um, is is Jesus. Um, it, it's all about Jesus. Again, if you read through the whole thing, and, and we, we won't read it for you, you can go back and read it on your own, but verses 16 through 41, um, Paul's sermon to the, to the Jews in Pisidian Antioch, it's all about Jesus. And that culmination that you just read in verses 38 through 49 is the implication of the gospel. The, the good news there in verse 32, again, I'm just going to, I know I sound like a broken record. We tell you the good news, what God has promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is uh, the the hallmark of the gospel because it represents everything about his life and his death culminating in his lordship. Exactly. And when and this great little verse in verse 42 or 43 in chapter 13 of Acts, when the people in the synagogues were dismissed, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism accompanied Paul and Barnabas. I'm sorry, let me say that. When the people in the synagogues were dismissed, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism accompanied Paul and Barnabas, who urged them to remain faithful to the message of God's grace. And just this great little language of, again, as we've talked about, we're beating it, we're beating a dead horse into giblets and into, into puddles right now. But it deserved to be said. Remain faithful to the message of God's grace. And just this kind of thing where even in these horrific circumstances, there's no language of hell, atonement, determinism, religious exclusivism, all these sorts of things. Because at the end of the day, Jesus breaks these categories. The early church didn't have these sorts of categories. What they did have was a message of a crucified and resurrected Messiah who was Lord of all. And I think that's something we, we kind of miss when we really dig down deep into certain theological constructs that at their heart aren't really speaking the language of the new testament and they're not even capturing these sorts of themes and i think the book of acts breaks a lot of these categories just out just out of the box it just breaks them and just removes them from it and so basically you're just kind of left going like yeah this is about jesus it's it sounds dumb to say it's like greg boyd says it all the time brooksy cavey say it all that says it all the time but yeah it is the bible's kind of about jesus it's just kind of <laughs> about jesus yeah, and even though you know we start in Paul's sermon here to get some language of um, you know justification, right relationship with God, it the, the way that that Paul is presenting it is is different than the way we often hear it presented um, today. This this idea of um, just legal. Like a, like a legal transaction. Uh, we're talking relationally here, the, the restoration of God's relationship with his people, not just mm. for heaven later, but restoration of relationship even here and now and, and how that culminates um, in, uh, in obedience. So I know we've been going a long time, but I think we, we should look at, at one more presentation. We, we saw Peter's presentation to Jews and Gentiles. And I think it might be worth just taking a look um, at Paul's presentation to the Gentiles, um, uh, to the Athenians on the Areopagus uh, in the city of Athens in Acts chapter 17. Um, it's, it's only 10 verses, um, and I think it, it only might 10 be, verses, yeah. <laughs> it, it might be worth reading. Um, 
so here's what he said. Again, Paul is in Athens speaking um, to Athenians. So this is a Gentile audience. And, and here's how he presents the gospel. He says, uh, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him. And perhaps, hmm, God did this so that they would seek him. I thought nobody sought, sought God. Hmm. Hmm, interesting. Hmm. Um, and, and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we oh, live and move. Man, and... Man. <laughs> uh, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think the divine being is like silver uh, or gold or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So even in this message, which again, he he, um, doesn't quote scripture explicitly, he doesn't even name Jesus by name, but he culminates in talking about the resurrection from the dead, um, and and again, the, the language of um the language of judging uh falls in right in line with our understanding of what it means to be um rightful lord and curious so even though we don't see gospel we don't see faith we don't see um lord or messiah because it's a jewish audience we see that the content is still the same and, and that he closes this sermon by talking about um, the one whom God has raised from the dead um, and by whom he will judge the world. And therefore the proper response is to repent, which, which again um, is more than just admitting you're a sinner. It's, it is that change of heart that we've talked about um, and, and then following in obedience in recognizing that Jesus is, is the rightful Lord. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. And just to finish off that chapter, chapter 17, verse 32 and on, when they heard that is the people who were being lectured by Paul, when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some began to ridicule Paul, you know, typical. However, others said, we will hear from you about this again, which is a very Lucan way of saying it at this time or at that Paul left the council. Some people joined him and came to believe, including Dionysus, a member of the council on Mars Hill, a woman Oh, a woman, huh, hmm. a woman named Damaris and several others. And so you just get a sense in which God made the nation so that they would seek him, perhaps even reach out to him and find him. He's not far from us. And people come to believe in response to what God has done in the world. And the fact that, you know, he made the nations, he made all these things. It's essentially God's way of saying, I've set up this world for you to be in right relationship with me and to thrive with me because I want what's best for you. And because of Jesus' resurrection, there's no longer any excuse for ignorance because you've seen it with your eyes and you've heard it with your ears that God has raised his son from the dead. And it's just kind of, it's a nice little kind of, well, the narrative kind of, again, as we've seen throughout all almost all of scripture, 
breaks these kind of easy categories for who's in, who's out, uh, imputation, justification, righteousness, all these sort. Of, it kind of it begins to break these categories when we just go back to the text and allow the text to speak on the text's own terms. Exactly, and I sort of missed this. I started to. Uh too late in the chapter acts chapter 17 i said there was no language of um jesus or gospel but in acts chapter 17 verse uh, 18 luke tells us that the um the um well so let's just let's just back up in athens uh, verse 16 while paul was waiting for them in athens he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols so he reasoned in the synagogue both with jews and god-fearing greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Uh, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Yuan uh, Galitzo. So that, again, Luke tells us, even in, in Athens, Paul's message was Jesus and the resurrection. Um, so I should have should have led with that going in, but um, so there actually is gospel language in in chapter seventeen, and what Paul preached was Jesus and the resurrection, um, and we see very little about um, so much of the other stuff that other people tell us uh, just simply have to be core to the gospel. In other words, um, I know I, I sent you this this article um, yesterday um, by by Kevin DeYoung um, about you know, penal substitution. And he's talking about, um, you know, how there are some people who are trying to downplay penal substitution and that it's really, I, I, I think what he says, I'm not quoting verbatim. I, I don't have it pulled up. Um, but, but he says something to the effect of, uh, it, it's, you, you can't understand, um, let me just pull it up right here because I think it's – I want to quote him directly. Well, if Kevin DeYoung's saying it, it's got to be super nuanced and inclusive of people he disagrees with. So, <laughs> um, You know, I, I heard him preach once um, and, and I don't know. I, I probably enjoy – I may enjoy sitting down with him but it, here's what he um, I can't find it. He, and he's talking about John Stott, and I, you know, and I love John Stott. So, but basically, he's saying um, the effect that that the the gospel is not understandable unless you talk about uh, God's wrath being assuaged by um, the the death of Jesus. And that's if that's true, we just don't see that anywhere in the gospel presentations and acts. Yeah. So if, for example, if any particular theory of atonement, right, is central to the gospel, we don't see those in Acts. So so either we need to conclude that the, the gospel preachers in Acts didn't actually preach the gospel in these presentations, that they're not full and complete, or that these things are not necessarily essential to the gospel, and there is room for um, some difference of opinion um, in terms of... Of, of what the gospel is. So I know that's a bit of a side note, but um, in light of it being um, Easter weekend and talking specifically a lot about atonement, I thought that was important to mention. Yeah, exactly. And it's just a great way of kind of illustrating the point we've been kind of commenting on. And so it's really good to see basically <laughs> the wrong perspective kind of offered like right in front of our eyes. Oh, this just came out perfect. What timing? It's almost a bit as if it was a, uh, Intended to be so. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, so yeah, I think you know that 
there's there's more in Acts that we could say, but I think those are the major public presentations of the gospel. And I think that, you know, today we ought to we ought to take that into consideration when we shape our gospel presentations. We're going to get into Paul. We know that there is more. We know that um, language of, um, you know, however you want to translate the word uh, hilasteria, unpropitiation or something else, or whatever you want to do with justification. Th- these are important themes. We, we don't want to downplay that. And we're going to talk about those when we get into Paul uh, in a later episode. But the, the preaching of the gospel in Acts was about Jesus. It was about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection culminating in his lordship of all and the implication of that meaning he is entitled to our allegiance to our obedience um and this is really what the gospel is about it was never about just um you know something happening on our behalf so that we could someday experience heaven in the future um so we're you know again we're we're beating a, a dead horse but um let's uh let's We've been going on for almost an hour and a half, so let's let's bring it to a close. We can come again later. Uh, we do want to give some shout-outs to some people who have been uh, supporting us in different ways. So, uh, Nick, who, who are we shouting out this week? We are shouting out to uh, two friends of mine from Facebook. Second Yang is a friend of mine from Minneapolis. And Ben, I've never been able to under- say his last name, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. This is going to be my Patreon moment. Ben Stasi- Sta. Stasiewicz. 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 There we go. There we go. It's almost as bad as saying Patreon. So here we go. Uh, thanks to them for becoming our newest patrons, kicking in a little bit for a brew for us. So basically, in spirit, I sipped the 21st Amendment today in their honor. So thanks to those friends of ours. And also, we've hit over 230 people on both Facebook and Twitter. And so it's really cool to see just kind of people coming together and digging what we're doing and it's really cool. So we appreciate Second and Ben for that and uh, too many more and all that. Well, hey, uh, cheers to them and cheers to you, Nick. Uh, congratulations on all the things you got going on. Um, I'll be gone for the next couple of weeks. We might be a little bit late on our next episode, um, but we do uh, – we'll just throw this out here. Uh, we do have written confirmation that we'll have um, Bruxy Cavey as a guest. We hope that we can figure out a schedule and actually make that happen. Um but he has uh, told us uh, that he wants to join us. We're going to talk about his book, uh, Reunion, which is all about the Gospels. If you want to read that between now and when uh, Brexy joins us as a guest, I would encourage our readers to listen to that. I read it um, in preparation for this whole series we were doing, and it's, uh, it's, just, it's very good. Um, so we're looking forward to having Bruxy, looking forward to connecting with uh, all of you on Facebook and Twitter. And again, if you feel led to um, become uh, patrons on our Patreon account, uh, you're certainly welcome to <laughs> to do that. Um, but again, congratulations to you, Nick, on all of your upcoming endeavors. And thank you to our faithful listeners for listening. We know this was a long episode, but we thought it was worth it because getting the gospel right is important. So, uh, Nick, why don't you close us out here? All right, you know, bow your head, raise your hands, whatever you got to do. In summation of a very long episode, the gospel is universal in scope because Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are universal. It is for the poor among us, which is basically everyone in the ancient world, and it addresses every element of human existence. And basically what we're saying is the proclamation of Jesus being Lord and Messiah is the gospel itself. Amen. Amen. Well, once again, we thank you for listening to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.